Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today, uh, well, in this episode, I interview Kendall Vanderslice, and she lives on the East Coast. She's a baker and a writer, and we spend most of the episode talking about dinner church, the, the theology behind it, but even more than that, we talk about faith and food and the whole connection there um, of what it means to really uh, live the Eucharist, um, not just perform it as a ritual once a month or once a quarter, depending on uh, what faith community you belong to. Uh, she wrote a book called We Will Feast, and I'll include the a link to it in the show notes. Um, and then also, also, I will also include her website as well, so you can connect with her there. She has some resources uh, on her website that you uh, may find helpful. So she has some bread recipes, and I think she has some other digital resources as well. Um, I just really think you're going to enjoy this episode. If you've been contemplating church planting, uh, especially a dinner church um, or any of the organic church uh, plant movements, this will be helpful for you. So give it a listen and share it with your friends and enjoy the episode. We really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we right. just start telling the stories and, and really flood the airwaves with something different? Okay, there we go. That's the right mic. Does that sound better? This sounds good. Okay, great. Great. Oh, oh this is fun. All right. Okay. Usually I have to do lots of, uh, well, I always have, I edit it anyway, but usually yeah. I have to do a lot of editing to the sound to the other person on the other <laughs> side. So it's always helpful when the other person has like equipment that's. Oh yeah. I do this a lot. So oh, it's good. definitely <laughs> worth, worth having the, yeah, having the, the right equipment. Yeah. I saw you back in, I think was it in the fall or or the spring that you were at Olivet and spoke there? No, you were at... Yeah. Um, um, I'm not at Olivet. I was at Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon, right. Yeah, yeah. I was there back in October, I think. Oh, that's fun. So what, and what was the, what was your theme when you were speaking there? Um, I was speaking on my book mostly, um, but sort of on the topic of eating together and theology of eating together. That's, that's fun. Yeah. So yeah. now where do you live? I live in Durham, North Carolina. Okay. But where were you raised? Um, I was raised in, we moved a lot. So mostly Dallas and St. Louis. Okay. Um, yeah. My family now lives in Boston. So <laughs> lived in a few places now. So you're in North Carolina. Oh, I have a friend that lives far from Durham. Uh, oh, she's okay. in Butner. Okay. Uh, North Carolina. Uh, anyway, um, so you're there and you're baking and you're writing. I saw on yes. your that's your kind of your title on your, at least Jen, your Instagram, I think, Baker Writer. Yeah. So what yeah. does, so what does that look like for you? Yeah. So I run um, Companion Bread Share, which is a CSA style bread bakery. Um, so folks purchase a share and then receive a loaf a week for the length of their share, usually either five or 10 weeks. So that is my rhythm half the week. I spend, you know, Wednesday at the bakery mixing and shaping. And then Thursday I spend um, baking everything off and delivering it 
across the city. Um, and then Thursday afternoons, I have a lot of folks that come and pick up at my house. So um, I get to see all my customers and um, it's just a really fun rhythm sort of in the middle of the week. Um, and then the rest of the week I'm working on writing. I write for, uh, I have a Patreon group. Um, and so I write recipes and reflections for that group on um, all things related to food and bread and uh, anything whatever direction that's taking me at any particular time. I also have a monthly newsletter um, and then I am hoping to get back into writing for other publications, but um, I've sort of been in a, after my book release, it's been like a full year of recovery. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. How long did, how long did it take you to write your manuscript? Yeah. So I started working on it. Um, I started working in 2015. It started as my master's thesis when I was at Boston University. Um, so that's when the research began. So I worked on it for a year there. Um, and then after that ended, I expanded my research, spent another year researching, um, and then another year writing. And then it was probably a full year to a year and a half after I finished the manuscript that the book came out. So it was a long time making. Yeah. So three years just before they even before it started to go to publication, right? Yeah. Sounds yeah. like, but yeah. there's a lot of research that went into it because you, um, and I, I'm going to reference the book in like the show notes and stuff like that. Because okay. um, you visited multiple dinner churches and they were, weren't they across the country too? Yes. So there are 10 churches included in my book. One is the early church, which obviously I did not get to go visit them. Unfortunately, yeah. wish I could have time traveled and sat right? at the table. Um, but so I visited um, all of the others. There's, there's one other in the book that I was not able to visit. It closed in the time that I was doing my research before I was able to go and attend a dinner there. Um, but the rest of them I visited in person. I worshiped at the table with the whole group. Um, I talked with congregants and I um, spent a lot of time on the phone with all of the pastors in these churches. So I traveled to California, to Seattle. Um, where else did I go? To Chattanooga, Tennessee, to Madisonville, Kentucky, you know, all over to Michigan, to Lansing, Michigan, um, Chicago, all to New York. I can't even remember where they all are. There are so many, but yeah, so I, I spent the year traveling the country and visiting all of these churches. That's fun. We're trying to, I'm trying to take a road trip with my, with my team to the one in Lansing. Obviously right now we can't do oh, anything. Cool. So yeah, but. my original plan actually was um, when I started doing the research, I was, after I finished my thesis at BU, I, I knew that there were several other churches that were meeting in this way. And so I started creating a spreadsheet of all the dinner churches in North America. And I had them sort of classified by geographic location, denomination, the day that they met. And I planned to go on a massive road trip around North America and visit every dinner church. Um, and then my list hit about 50 and I realized that was going to be an impossible task. Right. Um, so I narrowed it down to 10 and did not road trip it. I definitely drove to most of those places, but um, it was still a very cool, very cool experience to be able to visit all of them. They're all so different. Right. And it was just really powerful to, to go from church to church to church and worship. Yeah. Yeah, we, that's part of our plan is to launch some dinner churches over the next couple of years. We were supposed to launch one last month, but uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, everything has, gets thrown out now. Yeah, God has his timing. So we're yeah. back to the drawing board on some of these um, 
parts and moving parts. So, yeah. so do you own your own bakery then? Um, I do. Yes. So it is a, um, it's CSA style. So I actually don't have a storefront. Um, everything gets pre-purchased and then picked up on the one pickup day. Um, so I bake out of a local popsicle shop, actually. Um, oh. uh, the owner of the popsicle shop and I became friends. I did a lot of recipe development for her while I was in grad school. Um, and so when I kind of had the idea of wanting to start Companion, we collaborated again and she lets me use her bakery space. Um, and in turn, I do a lot of recipe development for her. Um, she works as, she's a great business mentor. So it's a, that's a really great gig. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you, did you talk about your own faith community in the book? I can't remember. Um, I did some, I yeah, did somewhat. Bit. Yeah. That story is kind of woven throughout it. So where do you serve and connect with your current faith community? Yeah. So I'm part of a small Episcopal church here in Durham, North Carolina. And I mean, at the moment, it's a little tricky because we're all, you know, nice. meeting on Facebook, um, which is just such a strange way of gathering at this time. Yeah, especially given that, you know, it is a very small congregation and it skews um, older and it's a really strange time to, to try and connect. But when we are meeting in person, um, I work with the kids. Uh, we do catechesis of the Good Shepherd which is a Montessori style um, Sunday school program. And um, I serve on the altar guild, which is essentially setting the table uh, for Eucharist every week. And to me, that's sort of very meaningful, um, meaningful way of, of engaging with, with my own church community, that it is this work of setting the table and the kind of behind the scenes work of washing those dishes and, doing the laundry for the, the linens and such. I yeah. was raised Catholic, so I'm familiar with some of that stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. Of course, Episcopal, you know, is a different, the different slant because yeah. of being Protestant. But um, so you have a master's in theological studies. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure, obviously, that lends itself to where you serve in your community. Do but like you're not ordained, right? My question was, you're not ordained. So why would someone want a master's in theological studies when they don't ha feel a call to ordained ministry? Like, so what was it that kind of drew you there? Yeah, it really was my research of dinner churches that drew me there. So I started um, with a master's in food studies and I was working in the restaurant industry when I, when I started that that food studies program, but I was always sort of interested. I had these um, kind of Eucharistic undertones to my food studies interests. I was really curious about why it was that God would, um, that Christ would give us a meal as this center point of worship. And so this, these, these themes of food throughout the story of scripture is really what drove me into the field of food studies. And then as I was doing my research on dinner churches, um, especially because these churches were so ranged so much theologically. Um, it just brought up a lot of further theological questions, and I really wanted to probe those questions further. So that ended up being what what took me to Duke um, to do this master's in theological studies. And there I got to dig even deeper into the topic of bread, um, which is really my my true love. Uh, so it was it was really my research that drove me into theology. And I went in, there were definitely points when I considered ordination. Um, but I, it, 
just felt very clearly like God was saying, no, you're not called to ordination. Like your calling is to set the table, not to serve at the table. Um, and that's kind of how I see my work as a baker, how I see my work as a writer, is that I'm, I'm hoping to set the table for various conversations. Yeah. Which of course, Duke University, that's how you ended up in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, ex- explain this MLA degree. Mm-hmm. So it's a Master's of Liberal Arts in Gastronomy, which is a just fancy way of saying food studies. Um, right. So we looked at food specifically from the perspectives of history and anthropology, literature. So less, uh, we were less looking at sort of food science or nutrition or policy, um, although there were some students who were really focused on policy, but we were much more focused on culture and kind of what food does or how food works among people. Um, This particular program also has culinary classes and wine classes and cheese classes, although I didn't I didn't participate in any of those, um, yeah. but it, it really is kind of an interdisciplinary approach to studying food. So all of us in the program had very different sort of paths that we were going down with this, but um, all yeah. sort of built around this theme of food is so much more than food. Right. And how it affects culture and how it's yeah yeah lived out in culture. It is true. I was reading your book. I mean, each one of them had very different, each one of the churches, you know, come from different theological backgrounds. Um, And so when you saw this, I mean, obviously food was the common thread, but did you identify any, any commonalities as you started looking at the theology and how the, how that was, you know, lived out in their faith communities? Yeah, I mean, I think for all of them, the common theme was that the Eucharistic table was was so much more than just a bite of bread and a sip of wine or grape juice. Um, this belief that the sharing of communion calls them into a more full-bodied way of living together. Um, so that was definitely the uniting theme among them all. But I think that as they ate together in those ways, it really transformed the ways they lived together um, and and consistently across the board transformed their understanding of what the church is and, and, and what being a participant in the church means. They all, I think pretty consistently, they all had much more robust sort of rhythms of of living out their lives in community um, than just gathering on Sunday. They all knew each other, I think, on a more intimate level than is common in a lot of church gatherings. And they were gatherings of people who are all very different from one another in many ways. And I, and I think typically wouldn't be, wouldn't necessarily be kind of the groups of people that would form in a traditional church setting that would kind of befriend one another. It was such a range age-wise, and there was a big range sort of of political background and, um, and theological background in each of these gatherings, but, but something about meeting over the table really enabled them to form relationships that probably wouldn't form in another setting. Yeah. What were the, what were the sizes of the, I think, because I think that's one of the things that I get questions of as we're mm-hmm. moving towards planning dinner churches. Like, what were the different sizes of the churches? Were, were they very? Were they mostly like, every reason I asked that is because I think a lot of people think the Last Supper, you know, Jesus and his mm-hmm. 12 mm-hmm. disciples, you know. 
Yeah, I think probably the smallest one that I visited was 10 to 12 people. Um, the largest one that I visited was about 150 people. But I think that probably the average is 30 to 50. Um, once you get over 50, it's really hard to have some of those more intimate conversations. Yeah, so that, that I think is probably the average. It's definitely possible to have a really intimate um, gathering with 50 because once you divide people into these tables of eight or 10, you know, it actually is, it is really doable. But I think 50 is about that tipping point, which, you know, it's, it's, um, each church has kind of handled this differently, how they, what they do when they hit that sort of that tipping point. Um, so some of them say that once they hit that number, it's time to split up and have, you know, two different smaller churches and then allow those churches to grow. And then once they hit that number, split again. And that's worked well in some places, especially where, you know, Simple Church in Grafton, Massachusetts, which is where I began my research. Once they hit that tipping point, they said, okay, it's time to plant a second one. And they realized that probably about a third of their congregation was driving into Grafton from one town over. So they said, well, let's just start this next inner church, that one town over. And these members who are already driving in, they'll be our founding members. Um, and so that worked well. And they now have two, um, the two plants in, in Grafton and in Worcester. And so I think that sort of model is a really great way of sort of seeing this work of, of spreading church planting, not being something where we're like, you know, we're going to go into this place where there might already be a lot of churches existing and plant something new. And instead saying like, oh, we already have people coming from this place. Let's go to where they are. And right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are you participating in any kind of a dinner church where you're at now? I'm not right now. Not, not here in Durham. Um, I, you know, I, I travel a lot and I lead dinner church services around the country. And so that's sort of been my participation in dinner church now. Um, but I don't have a dinner church community here. Okay. That's interesting. So how has this whole process of the research, writing the book, experiencing dinner church, how has that changed your view of worship and community? Yeah, I think it has, um, really deepened my love for the Eucharist and also deepened my, um, my desire to be in, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard not to think about it outside of the context of, that we're in right now, um, right. but it's really deepened my love for being with people in person to worship. And so it has made this separation um, so difficult, but I think that also, you know, as someone, um, who is Episcopalian, obviously the Episcopal sort of service is about as far as you can get from a typical dinner church service, where this very high liturgical, very formulated gathering um, is just so different from this very informal gathering around the table. But I think actually the two have helped inform one another a lot for me, and they've helped me to love the other all the more deeply. So, you know, dinner church has just really deepened my love for the way that we do things on Sunday mornings and then also sort of the formality of Sunday mornings and all that that teaches me about the Eucharist has deepened my love for these more informal table gatherings um, where we really focus on conversation. And we say, you know, there are a lot of reasons behind the ways that we do things on Sunday. And then there's also just a lot of mystery and a lot of freedom in just this worship and nearness of God and, and the importance of just living our lives with other people. Yeah. 
in, in some ways, dinner church makes me, and I didn't grow up in the church, so I'm talking from what I've read. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, some ways, dinner church makes me think of what Sunday school was originally. Mm. You know, like if you go all the way back to Catherine and William Booth, you know, starting Sunday school, which was to educate the poor. Um, mm. but, and then later on in, um, you know, with, um, you know, Wesleyan church and, and other groups where Sunday or Sunday school was your, your community. That was where yeah. you unfolded people who had spiritual questions, who were just starting to ask questions about Jesus and you did do life together. I mean, you ate breakfast and you, you usually ate breakfast together or you did it after your Sunday worship, so to speak, and had lunch together. And it was around those tables that you built those relationships and, you know, helped one another raise their kids and, um, and those kind of things. And then, you know, we, we moved into this era where Sunday school just became a classroom, not much different from worship. So you, it was basically Sunday morning worship without music, you know, and so really, and really left that original context of doing life together. And so dinner church kind of brings that element, it seems like brings that element back that worked so well, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it just so, it, it makes sense with sort of the cultural shifts that we've experienced in the United States sort of in that hundred years of just this privileging of sort of knowledge and this privileging of, um, of learning things and less focus on the formation of ourselves in the actual rhythms of how we live. And so I think our Sunday worship has sort of has um, followed suit to where we, we think it's sort of this knowledge download that if we know enough about God and we know enough about the Bible then it will make us the right kind of Christians. But I really think that that's not the case. It's this, we learn through the ways that we live with other people and we are formed and we are shaped by the rhythms of our life with other people. And yeah, um, yeah I hope to see churches return to sort of a, a recognition of that. And, you know, I think, I think meals have always been a center point of churches. Even, even now, maybe, maybe churches have shifted away from it some, but meals are still, you'll still oftentimes find kind of Wednesday night fellowship meals or, you know, various things like that. But I, I think there's, um, we've really shifted away from a, a recognition of that as being a center, central aspect of how we live in community and more as sort of a like fun extra for those who have the time and who really has the time anymore. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I know in my denomination, they didn't even track Sunday worship attendance until I think late 60s, early 70s. Before that, the only thing they focused on was Sunday school and doing life together. That's mm. what they tracked. And that was yeah. what defined whether or not you were being faithful to the gospel. It was how, mm. many pe- how many people were you enfolding? Um, and you know, were, did that include people of different socioeconomic status, different you know, yeah. uh, ethnicities and, and, and that sort of idea, um, which makes me think back all the way to Wesley, right? Who, who said, um, you, you need to be spending time with people who aren't like you. And of course, he challenged mm-hmm. them to, uh, to spend time with the poor because that's what really changes us yeah, is yeah, spending yeah. time with one another in life, not just 
like you said, downloading uh, information because if having enough information changed our character, then we should be the most moral, ethical people <laughs> on the planet right now. Right. Thinking about this, uh, what you've experienced in these last few years at dinner church, um, what kind of advice would you give to people who are considering planning a dinner church? Yeah, I would first say, you know, there's no right or wrong way to do it, that you just start setting a table and you figure out the logistics as you go. Um, I think a lot of people can get caught up in all of these questions and, and feeling like they have to have some perfect program to roll out all at once. But part of the very sort of heart of it is this, we figure it out as we go and we learn together as community. Thinking about sort of a dinner party, when you, when you set a formal table and invite everyone into a space that's completely set, you have a very different feel than if you invite friends over and they help you cook and they help you set the table or they bring a dish of their own. You know, you have two very different uh, sort of settings and, and very different sorts of conversations and relationships are formed out of that. And I think dinner church, it really helps to think of it as the latter, that we are setting this table together, that we're preparing the dishes together, whether literally actually setting the table and preparing the dishes together right. before the service starts, or figuratively, we are, we are learning how to put the service together together and, and feeling our way through. Um, so I would say don't, don't hesitate, just launch into it and see, see what comes of it. And also, I think uh, to just really remember that this is that this is worth it. That it is um, that it is going to be uncomfortable, and it is you might you might get pushback from other either church members or denominational leaders, but it's worth it. And the Holy Spirit is doing something powerful when we gather around the table and just keep setting the table, and people will come, and conversations will flow out of that. Did you, so I'm thinking about so like some of the questions people have had for me of, all right, so where do you find the people, <laughs> which I mean, hopefully we all know people, but uh, I think their, their focus is more on how do you find people who don't already have a church home mm -hmm. when there, you know, the problem is a lot of us, unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who only know Christians. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you see any, as you were doing the research and spending time with people in dinner church and even now as you lead some of them, mm -hmm. um, what kind of ways have you seen people deal with that? Yeah, I know. I mean, I've seen, there's one dinner church in Boston that I never actually got to visit myself, um, but I saw they put flyers up all over, all over Boston. It was sort of a neighborhood that was largely folks who were not a part of a church and probably very uncomfortable setting foot in a church. And the folks who started this one made it very clear on these flyers of like, you are welcome in this place and, and really focused on if you're looking for sort of spiritual community or a place to ask these really hard questions, um, we're here, <laughs> we have free food. Um, and it seemed to work. I think they got people and other places have done like Facebook ads or, um, or even just, I think once you get one or two people in and start talking with one or two people, they typically know other people who are also craving spiritual community and craving, you know, a space to ask these harder questions and, and the growth happens pretty organically, usually pretty slowly. But I think both um, sort of 
being okay with it being being folks that have another church on Sunday mornings. Um, even if they have a traditional church on Sunday mornings, there's still something meaningful and significant that they're getting out of these dinner services other nights of the week. Um, and then also letting that growth happen organically and, and trusting that that God will bring people to the community as, as, um, as is needed. Right. You know, sometimes, you know, like I know I've gone to, I visited churches before if I wanted, if I wanted to introduce, you know, an, an unchurched friend, mm-hmm. um, to some, to a place I've, I've gone first and then yeah. take, you know, before you yeah, just say, here, yeah. go here. Right. And yeah. then take them, um, so that they go, they don't walk in alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there may be people who come to a dinner church who, like you said, already have one, but there's someone they know who, who needs that connection. And yeah, another way that, um, so simple church in Grafton, Massachusetts, they, um, they also have a bread bakery. Um, I don't actually know if they're still doing it right now, but when I was, when I was there, they ran a CSA style bread bakery, similar to what I'm doing. Um, and then in the summers they were, they sold at the local farmer's market, um, which was right across the street from where they gathered. So they would have a booth at the farmer's market, they would sell bread. And then as folks would come and buy bread, they'd say, Hey, yeah, we're the church across the street. Like we serve dinner. The, the market was on the same day that we had, that they had the church service. So they'd say, you know, come on over to, the, to church after the market and get a free meal and some more of this bread. And so that was a really great way of they became really known and loved in the community because they were the ones feeding the community through bread. And then that also became a means of welcoming people in. Yeah. It's making me think about all kinds of Oh, getting it's, anyway, it's getting me excited again about dinner. Oh, good. <laughs> Not that I stopped being excited, <laughs> but I think I got discouraged, you know, because mm-hmm. right as we were getting ready, like we had all this momentum and then boom, you know, stay at home order hit. Yeah. So we all got discouraged because we had all these plans and passion. And, um, yeah, so I've just thinking about so all many people in that, so many people in that boat who were just on the cusp of starting and, and then this hit and it, it really sort of, I don't know. It's almost just this irony of like this refocus on the importance of being together in body and sharing a full meal together. And then going from that to this like forced virtual worship that feels like the total opposite. Um, But at the same time, I think that this, this time of separation is going to really deepen people's desire for and appreciation for something like dinner church, because this feeling of this deep need for community um, and embodied relationships is just, deeper than it's ever been before. And so I really do think that hopefully there will be um, sort of a resurgence of a desire for this after, after this is over and people are able to start gathering again. Yeah. Man, some of my questions we already talked about, but so, well, let's go back to this. You talked a little bit about how you actually grew up, you moved around a lot. So did you grow up in the church? I did. Yeah. So I, um, have my grandfather, several uncles, cousins are all pastors. Um, so long line of, of ministers in my family. So we grew up, my, my grandfather's a Southern Baptist minister. Um, and then my family went for a time to a non-denominational Bible church. Um, and then we moved from Texas to, to Missouri and we started attending Presbyterian church. Um, and then, you know, I, when I was in college, I dabbled around and spent some time in a charismatic community and then sort of found my home in the Anglican communion. 
but went to Methodist seminary and, you know, I went to two Methodist schools and, and worked at a Methodist church for a while. So I have a very, very widely ecumenical church background. Um, and I'm, I really think that has shaped me and shaped, shaped my work in a lot of ways that I'm really grateful for just being able to sort of see so many different pockets of Christianity and to really value so many different approaches to worship and, and understandings of who God is and how God works. Episcopal is kind of a, you're far away from Southern Baptist. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Yes, very far. Although it's funny, several of my, several of my cousins as well are also Episcopalian. And so um, it seems there's something with sort of the, the next generation of that, that pendulum swing <laughs> from Baptist right. to Episcopal. So when did then, since you pretty much uh, grown up in the church all your life, when did Jesus become real? And then when did you make that connection or start to really make that connection between faith and food? Yeah. I mean, I think Jesus has been real sort of ever forever for me. I think I've always sort of had that very, um, a sort of sweetness to, I think who I understand Jesus to be has always been sort of a, a, a present reality. I I think I've I've always loved baking and I always wanted to um, sort of have a career in the kitchen. I think that became much more clear in high school. But my my love of bread and my sort of connection um, of bread, I see sort of the through line of that from from childhood. From you know my very first communion, I write in my book about I stole my very first communion. And, and I sort of think that Christ has been, Jesus has been speaking to me through my hunger, you know, ever since. Um, but I really started making the connection between food and faith in college. Um, that's when I really started to see these, these themes of food throughout scripture. Um, and I think that I, that actually really paralleled with when I started attending an Anglican church. Um, and they're just very high and formalized sort of theology of the Eucharist um, really transformed my understanding of, of what it meant to share a meal together as community. And that opened my eyes to so much more um, sort of the themes of food throughout scripture and, and of how God is at work through food and through meals. Um, so that, that really began in college and then has just continually unfolded since. All right. Now I saw your puppy in the background. Yes. <laughs> He's he's snoring on the couch. Hopefully you don't get too many of the snores through. No, I get that. So what kind of dog do you have? Um, he's a beagle. Very mischievous. His name is Strudel. So clearly the love for food <laughs> carries through to that too. Right? <laughs> yeah. He also loves bread a little too much. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. So does my dog and she's should, she shouldn't have gluten. But <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, he probably shouldn't either, but he, he loves it. He finds ways to sneak bread off the counter often. Oh, man. Um, anything you want to share with the community? You know, I started this, originally I started this to tell better stories about women in ministry. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think that, which Dinner Church really goes hand in hand with this idea of, um, there's just not an, one more theology book isn't going to mm-hmm. change our minds, you know? And even with uh, all that's going on with with racism right now, not that it's a new thing, but you know, the heightened Mm -hmm. awareness of it, uh, which I'm, and I'm glad that there's so many books and people are reading them and that kind of thing. The the reality is it's, 
doing life with people that changes yeah. us and changes yeah. our minds about people and situations. Yeah. I so, think also the table is just what gives us the space to have those hard conversations that need to happen that, you know, you can read a book and either like agree with it or disagree with it or have your perspective changed by it. But it is this dialogue, this asking questions, this hearing from other people and, and building relationships with other people that really changes us. And those are, those sorts of conversations are hard and uncomfortable. And I think sometimes we want to escape to books to avoid that discomfort, but we have to go through it and the table really creates space for that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that um, there is something hand in hand with this refocusing on hospitality and on that I think is, um, I think it does go hand in hand with the significance of women in ministry that, that there is sort of this, uh, this kind of privileging of the mind and this privileging of, of theology and this privileging of sort of the learning side of it kind of has this very like masculine tendency to it that, you know, it, it typically would sort of code as masculine, this idea of this privileging of the mind. And I think that, um, this much more sort of feminine coded approach to relationality and hospitality. To me, it just is evidence of, of the need to have women in, involved in ministry and, and women really expanding the conversations of, of what it is that we do as the church. Right. Yeah. We've lost, we've lost that. Yeah. When we see, when we see God show up in Genesis and what does Abraham do? He serves him a meal, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we've lost that command. Um, how many times does Paul tell us be hospitable, be hospitable, yeah. be yeah. hospitable. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Christ's command to Peter is feed my sheep feed my sheep, you know, he's this cornerstone of the church saying, feed people. Yeah. And then Acts chapter seven, wait a minute. We're we're not, we're not feeding, we're not taking care of our widows. Yeah. 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 And I mean, even Paul in, in first Corinthians, I think, I think so often we get caught up in first Corinthians 11 and this, um, this idea of eating and drinking judgment when you, you know, share communion in the wrong way. And the people have really a lot of, that's been, of course, the source of argument among the church for, for centuries, this fear of like, what does it mean to eat and drink in the wrong way? And, and ironically, like it, it is keeping us from eating and drinking together. Um, and the context there is, you know, this, this full meal being shared and not being shared evenly with, with everyone present of the wealthy getting drunk and eating to excess while the poor are left kind of on the, the margins of of the house and we can't really even comprehend that unless we understand the context of like they're sharing a full meal together and it's a meal that that breaks down the the boundaries of society and and subverts the expectations of culture and when their when their meal upholds those those boundaries and the expectations of culture that's when it's considered this abomination to god right yeah when i when i was did you did you share that too in your book um, I did. I got into that a little bit in the book, um, and I definitely get into that in sort of the curriculum that I right. just released. Yeah. Well, I just appreciate you taking this time and doing all, and you know, coming on the podcast and talking about this. We have, you know, the people who listen to this have, you know, they're looking for uh, new ways to yeah. be Christ in the community. 
Um, and dinner church is just such a practical way for us to do that, especially right now. Yeah. I'm, I love being able to talk about it and encourage others to, to do it. So it's always my honor to be able to, to be a part of that encouragement. Fine. So are you going to get to do anything fun the rest of the day? Um, not quite sure. <laughs> you know, not, not so much to do right now when we can't quite right. leave the house. So I will probably bake some more bread and do some more writing about bread. <laughs>